ATV Talk, the podcast. Sit down with your host industry professional, Leonard Duncan, as the men and women from the ATV world bring their behind-the-scenes stories to life. Every Tuesday at 5 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. And remember, dream big. It could be your story one day. Hi, Jim. How are you? Hi. I'm great. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Hey, I want to really reach out and say thank you very much for taking some time with ATV Talk. I know that you're a busy guy, and uh, I'm sure you have a lot of things going on, you know, with being in law enforcement that, uh, that makes it a little tougher than most of us. It does, but I am happy to be here. I was so excited when I found ATV Talk podcast, and I'm honored to be a guest. Well, hey, dude, you, you, you've... You participated in the industry for a number of years as a racer and then as a, uh, if you could fill me in a little bit so that I don't mess it up with the Pikes Peak deal. Yes. I w- after I retired from racing on Pikes Peak, I was the assistant director of competition in charge of the entire motorcycle division on Pikes Peak. So the quads, motorcycles, sidecars, for a time UTVs, things like that. Wow. Uh, I'm sure that was stressful. It was extremely stressful, especially after some of the events that happened uh, once the road was paved and the accidents that happened in the motorcycle division. It was extremely stressful. Uh, Were that people just going down or people going off the edge? Um, We had three fatalities over about a five-year span. Whoa. And uh, that... That's drastically changed how the hill climb looks at the motorcycles. Uh, Once the road became paved, the bikes changed. We went from, you know, dirt bike chassis and that platform to road race bikes. Um, We went from 12 minutes being a good time down to below 10 minutes on a bike. And so it, it changed the race considerably. And it just, the margin, there was just no margin for error. That's incredible. You get some of those guys riding those machines and they can do amazing things. You know, I, I love watching MotoGP and, you know, Mark Marquez, that guy is just probably the greatest racer on a motorcycle I've ever seen in my life. Not taking anything away from the Supercross guys, but this guy can do things on a motorcycle that are just unbelievable. Oh, absolutely. So let, let's go back in time a little bit and let's... <laughs> you know, have you tell us how you all got started in ATVs. I, I noticed I seen a picture of you racing a three-wheeler have yeah. you been around that long. I did. I started racing an ATC 110 in 1985. <laughs> my uncle had bought a 185S, I think in 83 or 84. And then he bought my cousin, a, the 110 that I raced and they started racing the nationals and some local races. Well, in 85, there was going to be a national in Colorado Springs, which was my hometown. And my uncle was afraid there wasn't going to be enough of bikes enter the 110 class. So he made a deal with my parents to let me take the 83 110. My cousin had an 84 110 by then so that we could both race a national. We figured that if there was at least two of us, we would probably get to race somewhere. So that's, that's how I got started. And then it just grew from there. So you're, you raced the 110s and then you rolled into 185s, 200Xs or? 200Xs. So then in, in uh, 86, I got an 85 200X and that's when we really got serious with the racing. And you raced all over the country or you spent most of your time in Colorado? 
mostly in Colorado. I did have done a few nationals, went to Boyd a couple of times, a couple of others, but um, primarily in Colorado and then around Colorado, went to Wyoming, Kansas, like I said, Texas, but generally stayed in near my home. Did you, uh, did you run in the pro class or were you, were you running in an amateur class? Well, it was funny when I first started, our local ATV club had a 200 youth class and a 200 adult class. And we would run both of those. And I can tell you, some of those guys were not happy when they would get beat by, I think I was 13 or 14 at the time, uh, beat by the kids that would come up to the adult class. We really didn't have too many pro classes then. Uh, We would do some dash for cash things and some things like that. But it was primarily the, I'd run the youth class and then the adult 200 class. How did your parents feel about that? Oh, they were absolutely supportive, especially my dad, you know, listening to some of your podcasts and things with your dad, it, it really made me think about all the time that my dad and I spent together going to the races. Uh, my mom and my sister did gymnastics and cheerleading, but my dad and I for probably close to 10 years, just about every weekend we were at the racetrack somewhere. That's awesome. I love it because, you know, the experiences with my dad and the racing and and the things that we've got to do um, has set the tone for our whole life. Um, Yeah. We, I wrestled and played football and, and, you know, tried some other sports now and again, but it always came back to racing. It's, it's just in our blood. And it is in ours too. I I agree with you a hundred percent. We, uh, that's always been a part of our life and I think we'll always will be in some form. So now that you've retired from working with the Pikes Peak thing and racing, how do you get your, your racing fix? Well, I've kind of gotten back into riding motorcycles. I uh, ended up with a 99 catch 250 probably 10 years ago. And I've been restoring it, so I ride it some. I still have my Banshee that I raced on Pikes Peak, even though I don't ride it very often. But um, my wife's got a Raptor 660. Um, I've got one for my son. So I still ride the trails and get out as much as I can and still enjoy riding because I still love riding. Yeah, you know, the, the, that never goes away. I mean, once once you get bit by that bug, it, it's never going to go away. I, I have some physical limitations that, uh, you know, I still love to ride, but man, I got to want to ride bad because it hurts when I, when I do go ride. So uh, I don't, uh, I do some testing and I do some, you know, uh, basically evaluation of, of machines, but I don't, I don't go out and race or, or ride hard with the kids anymore. Yeah. I'm primarily trail riding now. I hurt my knee riding the dirt bike at the track. And I think I'm probably going to need to focus on riding in the mountains, riding on the trails and probably steer clear of the motocross track a little bit more, at least on the motorcycle for sure. (laughs) Yeah. I I feel that I feel your knees right now. (laughs) I have the same issues. So when did you switch from three to four wheels? We bought an 86 TRX 250, early 87. And so at that point, I was still riding the 200X, um, but starting to move up into the four-wheeler classes. And so then I started racing it um, both locally. I did the Mickey Thompson at least once when it was in Denver. Um, on the four-wheeler. And 
in Colorado, we can race pretty much year round. In the winter, we had an ice race series. In the summer, we had a local club that did a TT series. There was a track east of Pueblo, Colorado, that on Friday night, no, I'm sorry, on Saturday night, they would run a short track. And then on Sunday, they would run a TT. And so we'd go race those. And then once a year, they'd run a half mile, which a half mile on that 200X was quite interesting. Oh, I bet. I bet. What uh, Did you get to run the half mile on a Banshee at all? I didn't. I, at that point in my career, I didn't have a Banshee. That came a little bit later. I had run the half mile on the, the Honda and on the 200X, which that Honda, I really wish I still had because it had, talking to your brother, it had some parts on it that I think you guys did not make very many of. <laughs> um, I had a Paul Turner aluminum swing arm that he said you guys just didn't do very many. No, there just wasn't weren't there got that many of them. Um, but it's it's a it's a finder's dream if somebody has one. Um, you don't even see those you don't even see those parts pop up on social media um, because not that many people have them. Uh, it, it's a rarity. I've never seen another. And then I had the, the high rev pipe, which you just don't see now either. I, I knew I still carry the, I think the eliminator pipe, but I had the high rev Paul Turner pipe and that swing arm uh, on that, that 86 Honda. And that was a, that was a shorter swing arm than stock too, wasn't it? Yes. Yeah. That's the, the yeah. I want to get, I want to get my hands back on all those parts. Um, we still have a few uh, high rev pipes hanging up, but, but they're not sellables there. Uh, we keep them for fixtures or if we're ever going to remake, we have to have them. Uh, so we have, we have some of everything, um, but we don't, we can't sell them all because if we're ever going to remake, uh, you have to have a, a dimension pipe to, to be able to do it again. And we still have all the fixtures. Um, actually, Lauren's going through a lot of the stuff and deciding what he's going to build and what he's not going to build. That's a little insight that, that not everybody hears. Um, some people call and ask for stuff, but in the financial climate that you're in is in, in a business. Now you have to be very selective on what you're going to build and what you're not going to build. Um, we still have the Banshee stuff going and the LT 500 and we just made the ATC high rev pipe again. So it's back on the market. Um, and the eliminator pipe for the TRX 250R. Um, that's about all we do for the two-stroke stuff now. Uh, like I said, Lauren's deep into deciding what he's going to do. It's not my call. It's not you know I don't want to I don't want to spend those dollars. <laughs> sure, I, I totally understand that. I was I know it took some talking to get Lauren talked into doing those motors he did for the Banshee for Pike Speak because those were. To my knowledge, still the only two 500 Banshee motors that that Duncan Racing built were one for myself and then my brother-in-law. Uh, we have we have more out there. Just we don't advertise that we do it. If people come to us and want to do that, Lauren has you know the detailed conversations which you're aware of, and he talks to him about it and talks to him about the cost and and how it's all going to break down and work out. And for the for the legit person that really wants that and really wants to spend that kind of money, he's all in, you know, he's all in for it. It's just has to be agreed upon ahead of time, what time frame it's going to take and how much money it's going to cost. 
Sure. And I know that was a conversation that we had back when we built those two motors that if we were going to do two, we needed to do them both at the same time and, you know, and some things like that to make it logistically work. Correct. You know, and, and, and things like that haven't changed, you know, I mean, business is business and, and, the, the more you do of one thing at one time, the, the, the better it is or the more valuable it is for your company because you, you get to make more money and spend less time. Right. You, you know, I, I don't want to get off track of where we are, but I do have some questions for you. I know that you're in law enforcement. I know you've been in law enforcement for a large portion of your life. Um, how, how, is things, how are things for you in, in your chosen real profession? <laughs> It's changed tremendously since I started. I'm in a new assignment that's relatively new to me in, in the fact that I'm working in a jail now as a, as a supervisor. Uh, it was kind of funny that I started my career in this building in 1995 as a deputy sheriff, and then I came back almost 20 years later as then a supervisor. And so that's been a big change for me. But just the way law enforcement interacts it has changed tremendously in the 25 years I've been here. But one nice thing is there are still a lot of people that support law enforcement that are that kind of silent majority, uh, but will tell you when they see you that they appreciate the work you do, things like that. So that makes me feel good that there still is a large number of people that support what we do, um, that realize in any field, you can have bad apples, you can have a bad police officer, or deputy sheriff, but you could also have a bad plumber or electrician or any other prof profession. So it's nice to realize that, that, or to know that people realize that and understand that we're not all lumped into what you see necessarily on TV or things like that. Well, I agree with that. And I, I think that I, you know, we appreciate what you do and we appreciate your, your fellow officers, you know, male or female, you know, we support the blue and, and I just want to make sure that we got that out there. I did get to uh, speak to a young man named Tristan Powell and he will be on the podcast and he is uh, a young man that has already chosen his profession and he chose it when he was about 14 and it's law enforcement. And he had quite the input for me about being a um, uh, in the initial programs before he can actually study it. And actually, he's been on ride alongs and he's 17 now. And he is going through all of doing all the things he can to become a law enforcement officer. And and I think that it's uh, it's pretty admirable. And I one of the reasons I had him on the show is because he was so to me, the conversation was so dynamic and, and he was just so positive in his conversation and how he spoke of law enforcement. Uh, I had to bring him on and, and do a, a show with him. And that's great because I remember that feeling when I started that it was just the, the thing I had wanted to do for a long time and, and the excitement and the newness. Um, I, I remember that still. Um, that I had that when I was, because I started at the sheriff's office when I was 23. So relatively young. And, and I remember those days of just being honored and excited about what each day was going to bring and the new challenges and moving through the different areas. I'm here at the sheriff's office. We have the jail, we have patrol, we have investigations, and I've got to work in all of those areas in my career. And I really am thankful that I've been able to do that. 
Well, again, I really appreciate your service and um, all the, the other men and women in the field with you and make sure that you pass that on from ATV Talk. Our family's their family. And if they're in need, we're here to help. Well, I certainly appreciate that. Excellent. Let's get back to ATVs. I want to ask you some specific questions about um, chassis setup. I, I know Pikes Peak is a different form of racing, and I want you to to let the listeners in on that a little bit. Some of the things that you have to do to prep that machine to race up that hill. And something we need to start off with is that Pikes Peak has changed over the years. When I first raced the, the hill climb in 92, the entire Pikes Peak Highway was a dirt road. And it was, it seemed to me very wide and somewhat forgiving because it was a dirt surface. And so the setup and the, the machines that we used then compared to what I used in the late 2000s, uh, 2000, between 2006 and 2010, changed considerably. Uh, my first bike on Pikes Peak was a, an 86 TRX 250R that we somehow figured out how to shoehorn a CR500 motor into, which didn't work really well. I, I wish I knew then what I knew, what I know now, I probably would have done some things differently, but that's what we had to work with. And uh, that's what the bike we took to Pikes Peak to race against your bike with Mark Earhart and Mike Coe and Dennis Cox from Dirt Wheels and a whole host of uh, people that I grew up idolizing and admiring as I was a fan and a competitor of ATV racing. When I came back to Pikes Peak in the 2000s, I came back on a Banshee and the road had changed, the, the race had changed considerably because there was a lawsuit with the, the city of Colorado Springs owns the Pikes Peak Highway. And there was a lawsuit that forced the city to begin to pave the highway. And so what they did is they paved it in sections and about a mile a year. So when I came back, when I raced it the first time, it was all dirt. When I came back, there was some dirt and some pavement. And then I last raced on almost all pavement, only just a very small section of dirt. So the only thing I can't say is I never raced the hill climb when it was 100% pavement. But... Um, it became very specialized when the pavement came into play as far as the machines that were raised, spike set up, things like that. What were the differences that you had to do for the asphalt sections versus the dirt? We were definitely much lower um, all the way out to the 50 inch limit. I remember going through tech and my, it was close on the front. And so I told my dad, I'm like, lift up on it we had to roll through a spreader bar and I'm like, don't push down on the front bumper or anything till we roll through the sticks because the lower it was, the wider it, it spread the front end. Uh, you know, a pretty heavy duty sway bar on the front, anti-sway bar. Uh, wide on the rear, we went with aluminum axles, trying to lighten everything up as much as possible. Uh, really worked on rotating mass and resistance. So you know, hubs and bearings and chains and things like that. Just anything we could do to, to reduce that rolling resistance on the pavement uh, seemed to be beneficial. Once the road was nearly all paved, it, it was very much a horsepower course. So, yeah, but, but, uh, but good, sis, good setup 
wouldn't allow you to beat the guy that maybe had marginal setup with great horsepower? No, you, we really focused on, on very good setup. And I think we had, we had great horsepower uh, with the, the engines that Lauren built for us, but definitely set up and course knowledge. I think I had an advantage being local in Colorado Springs. I could spend a lot of time on the mountain, uh, getting to know the road. When it became paved, it narrowed up considerably because when the road was dirt, in some places, it could be four lanes wide, three to four lanes were wide. Once it was paved, it was two lanes with maybe four inches of shoulder outside of the white line, and that was it. So it narrowed up considerably. The lines changed. And I think that was a big part of, of my success was that knowledge of the road that I gained from all of the years of being on, on Pikes Peak. So did you run uh, short and swing arms? Uh, we did. We want, ran, a, I think, like a two-inch shorter swing arm. Um, definitely wider A-arms. I think one-inch forward A-arms, two-inch shorter swing arm. Then again, all the way out to the 50 inches. I mean, it would, the sidewalls of the Hoosier dirt track tires would touch the spreader bar as it went through. Yeah, I can see that. Uh, Pike's Peak was pretty strict on any kind of aerodynamic, but we did some little things that like lay in our front number plate back um, as much as we could. Uh, definitely ran fenders, you know, no front fenders, uh, streamlined body work as much as we could to try to, you know, help us in that situation. Because there are points on the road where on the Banshee, you could be between 80, 90 miles an hour. You never broke the hundred mile an hour mark on the hill. I, I did not. I heard your podcast talking about Point Devon and the speed you guys reached over there. And I think actually Lauren gave us each some sprockets, um, Alex and I, for bikes that you guys built specifically when you went to France for the beach race. Right. Uh, we ultimately ended up couldn't really use them because that we just never could. We couldn't quite pull that tall of a gear, um, at that altitude. Yeah, that altitude's tough, isn't it? What What's the highest point portion of the hill? Starts at 9,000 and then ends above 12,000. Does it affect your uh, physical fitness at all, or did you have any any breathing issues at that height? It didn't as much for me because I live at 6,000 feet, and I spend a lot of time in the, time in the Colorado mountains, but certainly it did have an effect on especially people that came from sea level. They, they could see some pretty bad altitude sickness and some adverse effects from the altitude. The weather on Pikes Peak is always a factor you have to take into account. Um, it can be sunny and 70 at the starting line, and it can be snowing and 20 degrees at the finish line. Wow. So that's anyone cool. that's not familiar with the Pikes Peak Hill Climb, it's a 12-and-a-half-mile road with 156 corners. Like I said, starts at roughly 9,000, finishes on the top of Pikes Peak at over 12,000 feet. Did all the machines stage at the top when it was over, or did they have segments where they would bring a portion of you down and then let and then start racing again? One of my first years, they brought the motorcycles down. I think that was a year that the car counts were down and, and to fill in some time. But most of the time, once you made it to the summit, you were there for the rest of the day. 
So did you have to carry things with you to make sure that you were safe or did you, or did they have a, a way to have jackets or shelter for you? They had shelter for us. There's a, a summit house on the summit that the tourists can come to, but they, the hill climb organizers would send a truck up early in the morning where you could put a bag with jackets and food and, and things like that. Because it, the bikes, motorcycles and ATVs always traditionally ran at the start. And so it was a long day up there for the riders once they made it to the summit. Wow. So how long did you spend up there? 12 hours or so? The race would start usually about eight and we would be up there till after five. So maybe not quite 12 hours, but getting close. And a lot of times the weather would play into that. If there was, or if there were accidents on the course, things that stopped the race and it would draw that time out. Do you think that uh, um, the comparable machines from the dirt to the asphalt you know, is, is there any way to compare the, the two setups so that you could, you know, just roll one machine into the other? When, when the course was split, that's, that was the, the key was to have a, a machine that worked on the asphalt, but then worked on the, on the dirt because at the beginning, you were 10% asphalt and 90% dirt. As that ratio flip-flopped, then the setup became more very asphalt specific. Um, we went to, you know, I believe the first year, a lot of people ran turf tamers back in the, when it was all dirt, things like that for tires or Hoosier tri-tracks. I know I ran tri-tracks and then the, the Hoosier fronts that weren't like the slicks. And by the end we were on, Who's your dirt track tires that were all, for all intents and purposes slicks. Um, and that's really where the setup had to evolve from that primarily dirt setup where you you have a little more body roll, you wanted a little more um, you know, movement in the chassis to get the traction on the dirt, things like that, to really a rigid, uh, non-flexible setup because of the you know, the corner speeds and then the load it put on the chassis with the asphalt. Did, did you have much drift when, with the asphalt setup? I, I never did. There was one racer that won the quad class a few, a few years after I retired that that's the way he rode. He still rode it like dirt. He would still pitch his, his bike sideways, slide through the corners. Once it was all pretty much all the way asphalt, I took the stance more of, of riding it like you would a road race motorcycle of riding, you know, charging in the corners, getting it turned, and then just really making it almost a series of drag races between each of the 156 corners. The key to Pike's Peak is really the memorization of the course, because there are some corners that you can hit wide open if you know that you're in the right spot. And there are other corners that you have to slow down considerably. And the problem is going into those corners, they both look the same. So you really have to know the course and know which, where you are in the course and to maximize the, your, you know, your efficiency and your speed through the corners uh, because one corner may look like it's a switchback and it's really not, it's, it's, it's a 90 degree bend, but as you're coming up to it, you're going uphill in such a way that you really can't see the apex of the corner until you get there. That's crazy. Did, did you, you were talking about weather a little bit ago. Did weather affect the conditions on the dirt or the 
uh, asphalt in a, in a negative fashion for you? It really never did for us because the motorcycles were always lucky that we ran in the mornings. Uh, and so in Colorado, if we get weather, it's usually, unless it's a, an anomaly where we just have a rainy day and it rains all day. But normally what we get is anywhere from noon on, the thunderstorms will roll in. And that's really where the weather would come in. So most of the time, at least for us, we didn't get adversely affected by the weather. But I can tell you from my experience that as an official, the weather much more adversely affected the course once it became paved for the cars than it did when it was dirt. Did the cars have the same kind of transition in those environments as the motorcycles and ATVs, where as the more asphalt it got, the more changes they had to make? Yes. Yes. So at the beginning, they were, you know, traditional dirt hill climb cars that they would make work on asphalt. By the end, they were asphalt cars that they would try to make work on the dirt. And then now everything is is an asphalt based car. Wow. That, that, that's a, that is a total transition. It is. And it's unfortunate because Pice Peak was one of those races, both for the quads, motorcycles and the cars that, you know, kind of a regular guy could build a race vehicle for and go race against on the same course that the Unser's raced on, the Andretti's raced on, um, Mears family raced on, things like that. And I think the pavement has somewhat taken that away because of, of the kind of cars that now it takes to be competitive and things like that. When it was dirt, you used to see a lot of guys bring uh, cars that were, and bikes and quads that, you know, they built themselves just like I did in 92 and 93, where I, you know, put together that bike with the, the CR500 motor and come up and race Pike Speak. And I, it's unfortunate that I don't think we're going to have that now moving forward the way the race has transitioned. That's unfortunate. That's really unfortunate. I was, I like the, listening to the the different things that and the setups because I did. I've never got to go participate, so I, I didn't get to see some of the things. Lauren went one year, and and a couple of years uh, other people went, uh, but I never got to go do that on all the things that I've done. Um, so it it. Uh, it sounds like a lot of fun, but I'm not an asphalt guy per se. So I struggle with, with knowing some of the setup. Yeah. And it, it, it took some time to get used to this, to that setup. And, and it's too bad you never got to come to Pikes because it's, it's unique. Unlike any other event that I've ever been to, the road is only closed one day a year and that's race day. So all of the practice qualifying, everything is done from sunup until the road opens to the public at 9 a.m. in the morning. So you're getting up there at two in the morning, which there should be, there's really no good reason other than to go to Pikes Peak to be up at two in the morning. Uh, You do all your practicing from as soon as the sun comes up and it's light enough to see until the, the course closes. And then on race day, you may run at 11 o'clock in the morning and you've never seen the course at that time. Um, Also during all of practice, you know, you're running on the course and there's a lot of highway traffic, but on Saturday night before the race, there's a huge amount of spectator traffic that comes up because that's the only night of the year that people can camp on Pike speak. So the course I found was often much looser much less traction grip on race day 
because of the increased temperatures, and then just all of the road traffic from all of the passenger vehicles than it was during practice. And that was something that we learned that we had to kind of take into account with our setup, especially jetting, because we were going when it was warmer and, um, you know, trying to find that, that happy medium or that fine line between what would work jetting-wise at that 9,000 feet and what we could then try to optimize it for the, you know, the upper section of the course where we're closing in on that 12,000 feet altitude. Maybe it wouldn't have affected the, the dirt to asphalt machine as much, but when you were on the asphalt, did you ever think about rectangular tubed or uh, oval tubed a arms or, or frame components? So to cut down on your aerodynamics at all? <laughs> we did. And that's one of the reasons I kind of amongst others that I, I sort of retired when I did is I really felt like it was going to take a brand new chassis if you really wanted to be competitive on Pikes Peak once the, the entire road was paved. Because like I said, the, the, um, the last year I ran and the, the fastest time I ran, uh, there was still like a mile and a half of dirt. But I, I could see just what you were saying, that, that there needed to be steps taken to really build a chassis that would be designed specifically for the asphalt. And there have been some guys that have done that, that they've built 100% homemade chassis uh, use some race car, Indy car type technology where they had, you know, radius rods and then the shocks were inboard, things like that to help them on the asphalt surface. Did it, did it put them in the winner's circle? It did. Surprisingly, their time wasn't as fast as I, I thought it could be. I've often wanted to ride that the specific bike I'm thinking of because I, I often wonder what, I, what kind of time I could lay down on that bike that was set up specifically for the asphalt, but I don't know if we'll ever know that now. What uh, you, you did touch on this a little bit. What are some of the safety uh, regulations that, that you look for in the different classes uh, versus ATV, motorcycle, and, and some of the cars? Um, for the ATVs and the motorcycles, one of the big things that we did to try to address safety on Pikes Peak for them is traditionally when it was dirt, Five motorcycles went at a time, even though everybody wasn't, they weren't racing one another. They were all racing the clock to speed up the program, so to speak. They would run the five bikes at a time or three quads. Once the race became fully paved, we went to a single vehicle at a time format. So there was, whether it be a bike, a quad, or a car, they would all go one at a time. Now, when it was dirt, the cars, they've, they've traditionally always went one at a time. But that's one thing that we did to try to help with the safety features. Um, so that we didn't, we didn't want motorcycles or quads really racing around each other at the speeds you could achieve on Pikes Peak once it was paved. Did they have contact issues prior to that with the with the motorcycles or the ATVs? No, nothing major, but a little bit. The things I saw more than anything is is that guys would lose their focus. When, when the, and this happened specifically in the quad class where a guy would get to racing the other rider and not the course. And in one circumstance, one rider went way too deep into a corner while the second rider was gauging off the first rider, not off what he knew the course to be. And they both ended up going off. Luckily, neither of them were injured and it turned out not to be a serious incident, but I think it became easier when the bikes and quads went in a group to lose focus 
from racing the road to racing a competitor. I could see that totally happening. Um, we discussed the motorcycle thing in the very beginning and how do you, how do you slow the guys down or how do you make it safer for them? Do you limit motor size or do you limit tires so that they can't go so fast? I mean, what do you do? We, we tried all of those things. We, we looked at tires and ultimately our last year, um, there was a, a tire rule that the tire had to have some grooving in it. Couldn't be a full slick. Um, because one thing with Pikes Peak that's different than traditional asphalt is it never did generate the heat that a traditional asphalt track would because of the altitude. Um, so we were, looked at that. We At one point, the decision was made not to allow street bikes with clip-on handlebars. We felt like they didn't have the maneuverability or the ability to adapt to the course conditions like a bike with more upright handlebars did. Um, that was one step that the, the race organization took to try to make it safer. Um, ultimately, though, I think the decision was made that the bikes are just had gotten too fast for the mountain. I don't know if bikes will come back. I think if they do, they would be drastically different. And I, and I don't know what that would be, how you could really make the race. Well, you can never make any race completely safe. And I, I think even if you limit it to, say, 450, you know, a supermoto type setup, that bike would still run, you know, 60, you 70, 80, 90 miles an hour on parts could, of the course. You could go 100. You could right. go 100 easy. So With I don't know. It's, it's a quandary that, that the, the, race the race organizers, competitors, and everybody are really struggling with. The COVID kind of pushed it back a year. So the, the organization has announced that they're going to they made no decision on the motorcycle division for 2021, but hopefully by 2022, they'll have a, make a decision on what if any motorcycles will be back on Pikes Peak after 2021. Well, you just given me my, my, uh, if I ever win the lotto dreams, uh, the things I want to build, I've been to Dakar three times and I want to build, I want to build my version of a Dakar bike because what they use to me is, is a sled. Um, mm -hmm. and I think that you can improve on it. Um, but you're talking about an astronomical amount of dough to develop those parts. Right. The parts they use now are refined from the first time I've seen them, but they're still far from race machines, even though they go pretty fast. Right. Uh, they, they just, they carry a lot of weight. They don't handle the way they should. Um, and it's, I think it's because nobody puts enough time and thought into making it a race machine because that's what it is. Right. Um, and it, just sitting here talking to you, I'm, I'm building a chassis in my head for uh, an asphalt machine. Uh, just knowing what I do know, I'm, you know, I'm piecing it together. I probably wouldn't go with a, you know, uh, uh, an Indy car or a formula one style chassis, but I would have to, uh, get educated a little better on asphalt, you know, to see how you would actually build it. I know I would definitely look at the new modern four strokes, the fuel injection and things like that, as far as power plant over, over the two-stroke banshee that I ran, um, I think that there's a considerable amount to be gained in 
new technology, ignition mapping, you know, fuel fuel injection, being able to compensate for the altitude, for temperature, things like that, that I don't know that has been fully explored on Pikes Peak, especially in the ATV class, uh, just because when the ATVs were really popular, there was that technology really wasn't prevalent in the industry at that point. Well, we're developing the ECU for the uh, 2015 up uh, Raptor 700. So that will be available shortly. Um, And I can see that that machine, that engine, because it is very powerful stock with the correct mods, uh, you turn Lauren loose with a, with some dough and, Oh boy. (laughs) Well, we had that conversation and that's the direction even, you know, 10 years ago that Lauren said, if it was up to him, that he would go would be that that's Raptor 700 and start developing that bike into something for Pikes Peak. Yeah. And, and it just never seemed to come to fruition and, and the dollars that you have to spend, which you very well know, you know, to, to, to build a machine, I don't care if it's for Pikes Peak or Dakar, or if you're going to go race motocross nationals, you're going to go race off-road, or you're going to race desert, the cost of these machines to make, to keep an ATV competitive in the pro class is astronomically high. And most people don't even realize or fathom how much they cost. No, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, you're building you're building twenty five to to forty thousand dollar machines, and 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 I'm sure that there's things that go on in certain programs that you don't even want to know how much money they're spending if they're you know making custom cranks and and you know lightening things up or doing different things with the heads. Yeah, you, you're cubic you're cubic dollars. It's it's crazy. Right. Right. Oh, absolutely. I know that some of the things and the money that were spent in watching the, the 200 X days and the motor packages that would go on and, and, you know, we weren't even, we weren't even touching on suspension correctly. And, you know, there were so many undone things that now it's just common that you, you know, you got to, you got to modify the suspension as you change the motor. And then the motor packages that we're building, you know, we're building bigger and better and faster now. Oh, absolutely. I remember on my 200 X that you would see people that would take a tie down strap, run it from the grab bar to the swing arm to lower the back end, you know, either drop the forks and the triple clamp or take the top fork spring out. But yeah, people didn't focus on suspension or things like that back in the 200 X days. And, and, Again, like I mentioned earlier, that first Pikes Peak quad I built, you know, had I known then what I know now, I would have done so much differently as far as getting that bike prepared for for Pikes Peak. Well, yeah, you just, you know, we all learn, <laughs> you know, we get old too fast. Right. <laughs> you know, we, we, we I'd like to start some of this when we're old. And as we got younger, you know, be able to do it because then we would be more knowledgeable and uh, well, we might not do it then because of the 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 pain that it instills in us when we're young. Right. No, I agree. I, you know, if if I could go back and do it again, um, but that when you're young, sometimes you don't always have the funds. That's, that's certainly that first year, you know, Pikes Peak said they would not allow the 250 because I would have ran my 250R, maybe explored a big board kit, something like that, but it had to be 350 or above. And, and they specifically said that you couldn't do a, a 250R big bore um, 
But, you know, at that point, I didn't even explore building a Banshee. I needed to stay with what platform I had to start building the bike. But then when I came back, you know, everything that was winning on Pikespeak was a Banshee. That that was before the four strokes. And that was just, it was very clear that was the package that you needed to be successful up there. Well, it's just like Pondevu in the, in the years from 93 on, you know, the Banshee was king, you know, and, and I mean, it lasted till... Geez, so what was the last year that we won on the Banshee? Uh, 2000 something, you know, uh, I think it was 2006 or 2005. I, I don't even remember now, but I mean, they're still fast, but the four strokes have evolved. I mean, in 2001, uh, I went over with Yamaha of Italy and we were first four stroke on a 660 Raptor, you know, and, and the, the four strokes are so much easier to ride. I, that's where I think that I could go back to Pike speak and still be successful on a modern four stroke is just, you know, from your work with the Banshees, you were from first to sixth to first to sixth. Um, and it, you really had to ride that bike aggressively to ride it fast. Um, and the new four strokes now are just so much friendlier, wide power bands. Um, I really would if I could do it, you know, if somebody would drop a pile of money in front of me and they had the race, I would love to go up there one more time on a modern four stroke to see what kind of time I could achieve. Oh, wouldn't it be so much fun? Oh, it would be. With the fuel injection and the relaxed, nonviolent acceleration in that fuel injected machine, the straight ahead drive you're going to get the way you could get the tra- the, the machine with knowledge to drive around the turns under power. Uh, yes. You, you're not violent. You're not going to break traction like you do on uh, your bench here in the two strokes or some of your more violent accelerating four strokes. It, it, it's just going to be almost like driving an electric quad up the hill. Right. Yeah. So there's so many benefits to it. Um, back to the comment about the, the not allowing the 250 R with the, with the big board, were they just uneducated on how fast you could make them or I think so reliability. I, I think that it was that. And I think it was, I really think they wanted to kind of limit the amount of bikes back in those, those early days and just didn't want, a whole bunch of 250 hours to show up. I, I don't know. I mean, I was still a kid then, not certainly not involved in any kind of part of the race as far as the, the putting the race on or anything like that. But um, I think there were some politics involved and I, I think they just had a, maybe didn't understand or know what direction they wanted to take the quad class in because that was being the first year that they were on the mountain. Well, I remember the year and, and I don't know what, what, um, I don't know firsthand the, the whole story. I do know that we qualified faster than the cars one year and they were pissed and changed our time. It's all unfinished, it, but it has always been a car race first and foremost. And I was don't know if I was up there that year, if, if that was one of the years I raced or not, but I certainly could, could see that happening. And it's unfortunate, but that politics enter, you know, interjected itself in those situations but that race has always been a car race even though the motorcycles in some of the lean years um, the motorcycles really kept the race going 
Right. They they don't get they don't get the credit. You know, I mean, I don't know if the ATV numbers have dropped off over the years. Uh, as when the cost goes up, usually they do because it's so expensive to build an ATV. And they have they they dropped off the last few years. Where when I was racing from '06 to 2010, in that era where we'd have 20, there was four or five. Wow, that is a big drop off. It was. Do you think the numbers are going to come back in 2021? If they have uh, bikes and ATVs, I think they will. We're they're approaching the hundredth anniversary, and I think that there would that would draw some additional competitors that would like to be able to to say they raced at the hundred hundredth anniversary of the first running. That would be pretty cool, wouldn't it? That's kind of like racing, you know, the Baja 1000 on the, on the, on the year 2000 when they had it or the Baja 2000, you know, winning that race year in, in the history book and in, in the story forever. Right. That's crazy. Um, What, uh, what kind of, you know, I know you are, you live at elevation, so it's different for you, but what kind of training would you do to prepare yourself? I know the race isn't super long, but you still have to have some physical fitness to make sure that you don't have any issues. Uh, was there anything special that you would do to prepare yourself? Um, I really worked on my arm, forearms, my grip strength, all that, even though it's not motocross where you really got arm pump, but just so many corners, you know, that that's something I worked on, um, to get ready, you know, the months before the race has really worked on those arm pump things. Um, and then the memorization of the course was the biggest thing. I would start driving it month ahead of time. I would buy the, you know, like a month long pass and I would just drive up and down just to, get that knowledge of the road because I think that more than anything is where you can really make up time. If you're completely confident and you know, you can hit this corner without letting off um, and somebody else isn't sure that's, you know, that's where you can make up considerable amounts of time and maybe you only make up a half a second, a corner, but when you have 156 of them, it adds up pretty quickly. Right. Right. Did, uh, were were there any methods that you used to memorize? Um, I would use the road markings. Like some, there's there's certain corners that are kind of famous on Pikes Peak. One of them is Engineers. It's a, a kind of a double switchback. But the, what I would use to to mark it is there was a a road sign that showed the road making that kind of you know an L shaped zigzag, and so I would use those. Um, Sometimes you could use the guardrails, but not always. Uh, where it got difficult was in the mornings during practice, running at sunup, a lot of times you'd have to deal with the sun glare. And so that made it difficult to, at some points, see portions of the course. Wasn't a problem on race day because we always ran a little bit later. But that was was definitely an issue during practice was, was dealing with the sun glare. Did you ever have to run in fog or anything like that or clouds? Never really dense fog. Um, there was, it was not the year I won, but one of the years that the, the storms were starting to roll in. And so it was, it was becoming foggy, but luckily by the time we got up, it the, the, the visibility was still good when we got up there. But yeah, that, that would be scary to, 
you know, to hit a certain point where it's just completely fogged in. And I know the cars have had to deal with that several times. Well, my dad tells a story about, um, I forget the gentleman's name, racing motorcycles on the Isle of Man. And they would talk about one of the sections where they would go into the clouds and he, and, and they were asking this man questions. And he said, you just count one, 1,000, two, 1,000, three, 1,000 and turn because wow. you, you had the number in your head, you knew where it was, you know, you got to ride that section in a, in a, when there was no cloud there and you knew that you had to be prepared for that. So you had to memorize and, and count that section. And, um, he said it was, that wasn't scary. He said, what was more scary was crossing the, the painted lines back. And then the tire technology was so poor that, uh, the paint on the road would cause you to crash because you would lose traction. We had that same issue on Pike's Peak with the motorcycles is they had to be very careful on that paint because they would lose traction. And there was more than one uh, crash that we felt like was directly attributed to that, that they just were on that paint and, you know, lost the front end or something like that. And, and it caused them problems on the quads. It was, it really wasn't an issue that I ever really, remember dealing with, but I know it was for the motorcycles. Wow. I I didn't know. I thought that with the tire technology that we had today, that they would have less of an issue with that. Part of Pike's Peak is the, there's a lot of moisture. And I think that paint would, would hold the moisture would be a little bit different than it was on the asphalt, I think was part of it. And the faster tire would not allow you to run uh the same grip so if you put a tire on that's going to grip on the paint it's not going to be as fast in the good portion of the asphalt or in the grip. right okay yeah, yeah that makes much more sense um you know did, were the motorcycles that at the end there were they fuel injected they were so they were the the bike that was going to set the record was a ducati prototype um that was fuel injected and, you know, specifically really set up for Pikes Peak. Uh, did you ever get pictures of that? I do. I have some, yes. You need to send me one of those. I want to see that. I will. Because those, I'll bet you that is just something to see. And it never got to run? It, it ran on race day, but it didn't finish. But it, he was, the rider was set to, did he, to break the... the he fell off previous motorcycle record. He fell off or he yeah. fell oh. off bad. Yeah. Ooh. Yeah. We don't need to talk about that. Right. <laughs> that's, that's a bummer. You know, that's a bummer. You know, did, did, did any of the international guys uh, on the, on the motorcycle stuff come and ride Pikes Peak or was it mostly Americans? It was mostly Americans. Michael Dunlop, who ran Isle of Man, and that came, can't remember if it was the last year I was up there, or the second to the last, ultimately had some bike problems and some things and didn't race on race day. But he was probably the most famous European rider that came to Pike Speak when I was up there. Um, we did have a lot of Europeans, but no, we never had any like MotoGP guys or, or anything like that that I would have loved to have saw. Like you mentioned, Mark Marquez earlier, or Nikki Hayden was he was alive, or something like that. I would have loved to have seen one of those guys come to Pikes Peak. Did any of the dirt track guys from the states go there? 
they did, especially back before the, the it, it was completely pavement. Yeah. Yeah, because it looked it looked like they used a lot of uh, dirt track style machines in the old days. They did. That's awesome. I mean, you got to figure that's where my dad's comes from. Is he did a lot of dirt track stuff where uh, maybe more TT than than the ovals, but that's kind of where his background was. You know, you go to Speedway One Seventeen here in Southern California, and they're running on the clay oval you know, or they're running the TT and it was just, that's just what we grew up, you know, watching him ride his triumph, you know? Sure. Well, there was some real interest from American flat track to come to Pike's Peak. It's an unfortunate the way the events played out that they never really had that opportunity, but there was some interest from them to bring those bikes to Pike's Peak. That would have been awesome. Because it would have, you know, you're, you're, if you, if you, I mean, there again, I'm just, I'm just spewing information that I don't have all the facts, but if you could limit it to that, that classification, uh, right. you just changed the speeds they're going to travel because they're bringing their specific race machines that they would go race the half mile somewhere to Pike Peak and, and run them. Uh, and that's going to limit the speed. Right, right. And I think if, if bikes come back to Pike's Peak, that's what we're, you're going to see is you're going to see some very specific, a very narrowly focused, you know, package, something like that. Uh, and I think those bikes would be very successful on Pike's Peak, put on a great show. We'll wait and see. Hopefully, hopefully motorcycles are done on Pike's Peak. I, I think it will be a sad day if, in fact, the decision is made not to have the bikes come back. Are you, do, they have, do they ever have a class for the UTVs? They do. And initially they were in with the bike program. They've kind of migrated them back over to the car side. But yes, we've had several UTVs over the the years I was up there. I'd like to see, you know, is the rubber band car faster than the transmission car? You know, um, I, I could see where the Yamaha and the Honda would probably have an advantage. Right. See, in the UTVs that came up, there were were... A few years ago, so they were the the early generation razors, things like that. Right, and now you have the Talon and the Yamaha, and I think Kawasaki's got a version that would probably be able to do well there. Yes, I agree. I think so. I think they could be very competitive. There was at one point, Slings Polaris did reach out to the race about bringing one of those slingshots, and that never came, you know, came to fruition. But that was something they were had shown some interest in. That's crazy. Yeah. You know, I, I don't know where it's all going to go. I just know that, you know, now you've sparked an interest in me to, if I win the lottery, I'm going to be building a machine, you know? So. And me too. If I win the lottery, I'll be calling you to build one because I would, I would definitely love to take one more crack at it for sure. Oh, and I know my brother-in-law would. How's he doing? He's doing great. He, Kind of bums me because he was always faster than me. He should have probably won three times up there. The year I won, he should have won because I was, he was in the front row. I was in the second row. So I qualified fourth fastest. He qualified. I don't know if he qualified on the pole or second fastest. I don't remember, but I just remember going in and I was, I was leading my group. But the next thing I know, I passed one of the guys from the front row. So I'm thinking, okay, I've got, you know, two in front of me. Well, then I passed the next guy from the front row. 
So then I'm thinking, this is great. It's just me and Alex are the, we're the two fastest on the course. And then I get to just blow devil's playground. So probably three quarters of the way up and I passed Alex. And, uh, did he have problems? He did. He, what they did is the ditches on the sides of the pavement were, they looked like they were dirt, but they were actually paved concrete. Mm-hmm. And he dipped the wheel and knocked the chain off. Oh, in one of those ditches. And he, the year I won, he should have won. No doubt about it. Well, you know what? You but have to finish the race. Some of Pike's, that's a lot, of, a lot of Pike's peak is making it and getting up there. And he was the kind of rider that would, if he could think he could make it and not let off, he would try. I was always more of, a little more conservative, but I felt always a little more smooth. Um, and it, it worked. It obviously worked for me up there. Um, but yeah, it's, I would have loved to have seen him won the race. One of those years that we were up there. Uh, I, yeah, I, I agree. You know, you, you put in as many hours and as much time and, and, and I know many, I know many guys that never got to wear, you know, the champion banner, um, for whatever reason it is that, that well deserved it because they were fast enough or they put in the hours or they were around for years and years and years. Um, and then sometimes it just doesn't happen for them. No, you're right. It, but you know, one thing I was like, is we really had a lot of respect because I, I remember motorcycle guys coming up to us, telling us that they couldn't believe how fast we were going on the, the quads and, um, you know, guys, if, if new people were coming racing quads of pointing them to, to Alex and I, so that was nice that we, we seemed to have the respect of our competitors that we had a first class program. Our bikes always looked nice. We um, always tried to conduct ourselves professionally and things like that. And so those are some of the intangible things that I'll always take away from Pike speak that I'm proud of. You know, certainly that trophy is, is something I'm extremely proud of because not a lot of people have that, that trophy that say they won the Pike speak hill climb. No, and that's, uh, you know, that's something to be very proud of. Uh, you know, uh, like I said, I didn't, I've never got to go there as, as the crew chief for the mechanic of the machine. I, I built some machines that race there, but building it in the shop and then it's always cool when it wins, but being the guy standing there at the end to, to load it in the truck is, is also uh, something to be happy about. And uh, Absolutely you know, you get to, you get to feel a little bit of the accolades of, of winning, you know, and, and it, uh, it, it changes your view on it. And, uh, yes, I certainly agree with that. It does. It's one thing about Pike speak. I always felt that it was, it was an accomplishment to make it to the summit. And although it wasn't the same feeling as winning, I always felt a huge sense of accomplishment, just, making it to the summit every year that I did. And I was lucky that all of the years I raced, I made it to the summit. And uh, that was something I'm also proud of. And at least I always gave myself a chance. I never beat myself up there, which I think was one of the first steps to being successful. It is, it is, it is. And that's, that's incredible. I'm, uh, I'm glad that, uh, that you, you did bring that up. Um, So if we were going to reach out to someone that is maybe thinking of racing Pikes Peak or getting involved in something like that, what would be the advice that you would give them? 
I think that if there's still a local hill climb series here that runs the quads, um, it's all dirt, so it's a little bit different, but that's where I would start is start at that local level, like you would racing, you know, in any other series, you know, if you're, most people don't start racing the nationals, you know, by going to the nationals and, and, and entering the pro class, they, they work their way up. And I, I would say the same thing, you know, get acclimated, um, to the type of racing because it's it's unique but it's unlike any other racing that I think most people do um, making some good contacts with people that have been successful that know kind of the ins and outs of building what kind of bikes work and some setup things I think things like that would be was, is something I would always encourage you know new racers to do because um, it's really that club is really a family atmosphere and I would really say, inter, you know, integrate yourself into that atmosphere because everybody helps everybody um, and things like that. And then really become part of that, that family. And then the quads were even kind of a family in and of themselves uh, where we, we kind of hung together. And that's, that's the thing I would say is, is get involved with that group, start learning what, how the races work and what it takes to be successful. And then, Focus on making your runs. That was the biggest thing that I always told people, you know, make every run, get to know the course, get to the finish. Um, don't spend as much time maybe tuning because you would see guys that would every run, they would be changing something. And I always felt like once we got our good setup, that then I just focused on, on the road, on the races, making it to the, to the finish each time. Um, and I always felt that that helped me be more successful than, always chasing, you know, changing a gear or changing something on the chassis or something like that. Especially once I felt like we got to a really good baseline setup. It is, it is easy to overthink it. You know, it is easy to do that. And have fun. That's the biggest thing about racing is it's, it's gotta be fun. Well, you're never going to, you're not making any money at it. You might as right. you're spending money. So exactly. Happen, right. Right. Yeah. The, the, the small check that I won from Pike's Peak in, in 2009, nowhere came close to covering my expenses, but wouldn't trade that experience for the world. I was, uh, in 2009, I went to Dakar and, uh, when we got on the podium, the Raphael Sonic took me and, and he, cause I was his mechanic and, and he said, uh, Hey, uh, I'm going to give you the winnings. And I was like, Really? Wow. How, how, how much did, how much did we win? And he goes, Oh, 300 bucks. Wow. And I was like, uh, how much did you spend again? <laughs> you don't want to know. Right. Astronomical. Yes. <laughs> See, and that's a race that intrigues me. I've heard Andrew short. So his interviews that, that people, he said people told him that he valued his life too much to be successful at Dakar, that he just needed to hold it wide open. And, and, uh, go for it. And that, that race has always been something that I, I would love to get to go to that at some point. I think that would be just a great experience. I know it's a lot of work and it's similar to Pike speak in the, the mental grind and the physical grind and the early mornings and the late nights and things like that. So at least what I know, and I'm no way would I call myself a Dakar expert, but what little I know about the event, there's a lot of similarities between it and Pike speak. You have no idea if you've ever raced the Baja 500, it's like racing the Baja 500 every day for the amount of days. 
we, I would, we raced for the first year I was there for 17 days. Wow. Yeah. And you're, I'm there four days before or three days before I don't get to see my machine until the second day that I'm there the night before the race, my pallet, my two pallets of parts and tires show up that I have to have, um, to finish my machine, to get it set up, to get it ready. Um, and the people that built the machine in France uh, had a base idea of how to do it, but they built me, they built me a Raptor 700, but no tuning device. I got a pipe, I got an open air box, I got all this weight and they didn't tune it. Wow. So, you know, knowing enough people, uh, we found a tuning device. We ended up having to put an engine in and, uh, for 17 days, we fought the elements and fought and fought and fought and ended up third, uh, you know, in a, in a series where they were allowing hybrids, um, when they should have been factory based machines right. and we still wouldn't have won, but we would have, but we would have got second, you know, sure. and then you never know what would have happened if it would have been a factory based thing. Um, I just know that it's the most miserable I've ever been. <laughs> and the coolest thing I've ever done, you know, yeah. I'd go back in heartbeat. Wow. That's great. Can I ask you a question? Yeah. Fire away, man. This is Where do time. you see the ATV industry going? Do you think we're going to see OEMs start bringing back, you know, somebody other than Yamaha make a 450 quad? Do you think, because we're getting back into that time in the, early nineties when Honda, everybody quit making the two fifties. So then people ran two fifty R's and you guys built aftermarket cylinders and, you know, roll design built chassis and, and other people. Well, then they started doing the hybrids. And I, I kind of feel like there's that maybe where we're going to keep ATV racing at at least a national level alive because of the lack of support I don't from the manufacturers. I don't think that you can do a hybrid industry ever again because the cost is too high. Um, I don't think it'll ever happen. Um, I don't, with the economic climate of the world right now, um, you'd have to take this without being political. Uh, at least I'm trying to stay away from that portion of it. But if you just take the the COVID portion of it, which is to me is a total farce, you know, you take it for whatever you want. And, you know, some people are going to listen to this and be like, oh, this guy's an idiot. And other people are going to be like, I agree. You, you take it for however you want. I apologize if you disagree with me. Um, but it, it's crippling the world. It's crippling our ability to do anything from build houses to, to race ATVs, to race cars, to do, to do anything. Um, that being said, you look at a company like Honda that, that is so conscious in counting the pennies. Um, and it took them so long to come out with a UTV and it took them so long to come out with their African motorcycle. And they're still having some jet things go on. Um, I think that a, a, a four-wheel ATV for the numbers that they're going to sell is so far down on the totem pole um, where if they would have came out with it five years ago when they should have, um, they, the numbers they would have sold just this year would have been astronomical. Same with Yamaha. Yamaha sold everything they had and more. And 
uh, is setting up for next year to be really good for Yamaha. But when you're the only guy in town, yeah, you're, 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 you, you have, a- I don't blame Yamaha for not doing any development on the, on their bike because there's no reason to. No, there isn't. And, uh, if I were Yamaha, I wouldn't change anything because you're going to change your production cost right now. Your production costs are going down because you're making the same thing over and over again. And, um, it's smart. It's smart business, just like they do with the Banshee, just like what they did with a couple other models. Um, they make subtle little changes that don't change the overall production a lot. Uh, um, but if Honda did come out with a machine, I think it would breed some life into the industry. Uh, I don't think Kawasaki would ever build a machine that's competitive. Um, maybe because they don't, uh, maybe because their engineers wouldn't listen to somebody in the ATV industry to tell them, you know, these are the mistakes you're making and this is what you can't do. You know, you need to take your motorcycle platform, change it slightly, keep the same electronics so that you can put an aftermarket ECU on there so that the aftermarket industry can develop on it. You know, the Q&M thing was, and the Polaris thing and the KTM thing were all a a joke in my opinion. Um, uh, You know, no offense to the KTM people, I'm not a fan. Um, and, And the Polaris guys just built it wrong. Uh, right. and I think, I think that they could have changed some things and made that Polaris 450. Um, uh, maybe, a, maybe never, a maybe never a Yamaha or maybe never a Honda, but they, they could have, they could have made something that was, was a stable machine that people would have purchased. Um, right. uh, the, the KTM thing overpriced motor was fairly good for a couple years. They, they needed some more development. Uh, you know, I know Shane hit and Tim Farr and some guys like that did an amazing job for them. Uh, but they were still lacking a few things. Um, right. Well, my understanding that was more of a, you know, an off road based motor or it really wasn't like comparable to the, the KTM motorcycle motors of the time. Uh, they had a 450 that was pretty pretty stout. You know, was it didn't run well. I, I think their chassis was a little off, but you know, that's just my my opinion. And who am I? You know, I mean, just because I disagree with something doesn't mean that it should be changed. But um, you know, Suzuki kind of shot themselves in the foot. Their machine is still a good machine, and I think um, could be competitive with some changes. Uh, you could, you could, if you had a program and you could buy enough parts, you could probably take a Suzuki and run in the pro class and run well without burying yourself too much. Um, but you, you know, the, like, just like the Honda issue, um, is, is a problem now because they stopped making them in 14, you're 20 and you're 2020 and you're having, uh, reliability issues. I, I don't know if it's because, uh, the, the, the team changed. I don't know if it's because they're overbuilding the motors. I don't, I don't know. I know that he wins a championship. They change personnel and he doesn't win a championship. Right. Maybe you guys ought to look in the mirror at the personnel. Yeah. And you well, it just, it, I've been around enough as you, as you have to know that I just don't see that same model working at the nationals of you know, half the field on Yamaha's and half the field on yeah old Hondas. 
I mean, one, they're going to run out. Eventually, there's going to not be a lot of serviceable, you know, Honda 450s left. You're probably built to start. You're your probably platform. ten years, twelve years down the road before that happens, right? You know, look at the 250R. Um, the yeah. difference in the difference in the 250R is is there's so many people that love the 250R. Um, that's why the resurgence. That's why you see aftermarket parts, you see aftermarket chassis. I, I don't think the 450 will ever go there. Uh, do I favor the Honda? Yes, I do. Um, but that Yamaha package, you know, that, that, uh, that we had for Sloan in 2018, when we won the works title, um, that's a, that, that's a great power plant. That's a great package. Um, and, and unfortunately, you know, Mike wanted to go a different way and we never got to go and develop the motor package. You know, we all, Lauren always has, you know, more tricks in his bag and never gives them all at once. Um, right. so I know that there was more to do and, uh, for, for whatever reason, it, we decided to go a different way. And then 2020 rolls around and, you know, it worked out better for our business and for our family, um, to be at home for me to be at home this year. This is the first year in 30 years that I've been home. Wow. And uh, I have a new wife and, uh, you know, I kind of like spending some of the weekends with her. It was kind of cool. Um, So, so that was new for me. Um, But, but, but as far as business wise for Duncan racing, um, there's not as many people that do what we do. And we're, we're busting at the seams with being able to do more. And, and I know that some people get upset with us because we can't turn the product as fast, but you come to Duncan racing for one specific reason. You want a specific level of quality. You want a specific product and you want it done a specific way. And the only way to get that is to get a Duncan to do it. Right. Oh, I can tell you on Pike Speak, there were guys that claimed, and I, you know, it's, it's racing, so you can claim that, you know, whatever horsepower that claimed, you know, horsepower above what ours were, but I would not, the reliability and the quality and everything that I got from Lauren and from you and Alex and I got from you guys for anything. And I think you just look at who's in the industry now, how many back in the heyday companies that were building bikes that are no longer around and you guys still are. And I think that's a, a huge testament to the type of work you do and the quality and the, and, and everything that, that goes along with it. Well, I didn't want this to turn into a commercial for, for Lauren and, and I, but um, you know, we work hard and, and you can't say that guys like Curtis Sparks or Mark Baldwin or some of the other guys that are out there today don't work hard because I know they do. And sure. Uh, you know, and, and I'm not calling any of them out uh, in any way, shape or form. It's just like we talk about Joel Hedrick and Hedrick and his issues for the year that, you know, but you can't take anything away from Chad Ween and he's older. Um, he shouldn't on paper. He should not have won. Right. Um, but he rose to the occasion, did the things that needed to be done at his age, um, which he's still not old. Um, but it's phenomenal. I, I mean, I have hats off to the guy. It's, I, I can't wait to have a conversation with him because I'm so stoked on what he did and what he's achieved and he's not done. No, absolutely not. And, and they just amaze me how fast those guys are going now. I mean, from watching 
the three wheeler days to the to the two fifty R days and through. It's just amazing now, and I haven't been to a national in in quite a few years. But watching them on TV, just how fast those guys can go now is just incredible. Well, the the suspension's gotten better, and the suspension technology, uh, let alone with the motor technology or the style of motors that we use now, uh, you got guys like Doug Roll that are developing shocks for Elka, and they're doing things with the with the machines. Uh, we built a, a a desert machine for the. Um, Simmons brothers. Um, and Josh Rowe was my tester here in, in Southern California. And they did some new shocks. Doug did some new shocks for that machine. And I'm doing my final test in the parking lot and I'm just running over these little curbs. It's no, no big deal. Right. But it's not lifting the handlebar. It's not, I'm getting no feedback in my hands. I called Josh on the phone and I go, Josh, did you feel this? And he goes, I know it's cheating, isn't it? Wow. And then they went out and just destroyed him in Vegas, Torino. I mean, I think we won by two hours. Right. Um, it, it was unbelievable. The, the, the machine was just so much faster and everybody that got off of it was just, you know, they weren't even fatigued. It was unbelievable. And, and, um, the package that they still run today, the shocks still are amazing. And you know, Bo Barron, 38 years old, 39 years old, whatever he is in the off-road industry running against a, a, a young stud like Mike Sloan and, you know, Bo's, Bo's still doing it, you know, he's still right. leading the points and, and, um, all those kids are chasing him and, and part of it's because of the technologies and the shocks. So I don't know if I answered your question. I mean, I could throw the same thing back at you. I mean, what do you see happening from your vantage point um, in the industry and with the ATVs? I just see that if there's not at some point some OEM involvement, it's just, it's going to be stagnant. I mean, you probably will still have the nationals and, and you'll have that small pro class. But I remember the days in, in 1986, when you had a full field of pro three-wheelers and a full field of pro four-wheelers, and I just don't know if we're ever going to get back to those days where you're going to see the you know, big bike counts and things like that. And it's, it's unfortunate if the industry does, you know, doesn't continue to grow because the, the manufacturers don't provide new, new bikes. And, and like you said, new technology that then you, that aftermarket companies can develop and things like that. Well, the first thing we got to do is get rid of social media and cell phones. Right. We get rid of those. We'll get people back on the off-road vehicles. You know, look at what happened with COVID, you know, in the off-road industry, it exploded because people were, they had nothing else to do. Right. Go ride, go play on your ATVs, go uh, do the things in your UTVs, go camping. And we took, we took our industry by storm and uh, our store just for our company. And I know that I've spoken to competitors, you know, that are friends and uh, our store took off because right at the time that COVID hit, we opened our new online store and it got so busy. I couldn't keep up. And because of the slowdown in manufacturing and plating and, and building parts, um, we were, we were in the hole already before the COVID and now we're still not caught up to those back orders. 
Wow. And, and I don't see us catching up because they're closing California. I mean, we're October 12th today, but on the 14th of October, they're going to close down California again right. for zero reason, in my opinion. But yeah. you know, my opinion really doesn't matter. Well, I have since I left Pikes Peak. I have gotten to do some things I always wanted to do. Like we have the Lakewood National Thunder Valley. I never was able to attend that race because that was always a Pikes Peak practice weekend. In the last two years, I've got to go to Lakewood and watch the races. And so I've gotten to do some stuff like that that's fun. I've met some of the guys from Fly Racing through Pikes Peak and some things like that. So some good, some cool stuff that I've got to enjoy some parts of the industry and do some things that I was never able to do before. Um, which I'm, I'm happy that I've got to do that. You know, I, I, that's one of the things I love about the, this, the, the platform that we're on now, ATV talk is I get to reach out to people that um, I've seen race. I get to reach out to people that are, have raced after I passed my time in that, in that series. And I get to hear stories that are so amazing, you know, and I get to pass them out pass them on to, to the listeners. And it's just a really fun thing because I'm, you know, I mean, you hear it every episode, how passionate I am about the ATV industry and how much I love this sport. Um, and, and I just want everybody's story to be heard. And, and these conversations that we have, um, are priceless, you know, I mean, everybody says, says, Oh, you, you're running a podcast, you're making millions and, you know, talk to Cody, you ain't making millions. You're struggling to pay the bill to, to get it done. And if I didn't have family helping me, I'd really be in trouble. And, um, it's, it's, it, this is a labor of love and, and it's for the ATV industry and, and any sponsors I do get or any advertising I do get is, is just going to pay the bill for the hours that you put in. It's not, it's not, not going to make you rich. Sure. Oh, but I love, I mean, I love the, the new guys that you've talked to, but I love hearing from, I haven't listened to Jimmy White yet, but you know, I'm so looking forward to hearing, you know, his podcast because I remember watching him at the national in Iowa when I was like 10 or 12 years old in 84 uh, on his, you know, back when three wheelers were the Kings of the sport and in the rivalry with him and Marty Hart and, you know, the cool works equipment when Steve Wright was on that, you know, the 202 stroke and just all that stuff. I would love to hear interviews from all those guys. Well, um, I'm, I'm trying to, when you listen to Jimmy's, don't be mad. Uh, we didn't cover everything that we wanted to cover in the time that we had. And he's already agreed to come back so that we can talk about his a little deeper into his racing and the time he spent as race team manager for Kawasaki. So right. we'll be, we'll be touching base with him again. Um, I'm Jim, uh, Stevie and I are still missing each other. Um, and I haven't even got to reach out to the guys, um, prior to team Honda. Right. Uh, you know, when we're talking hardtail nineties here in Southern California and, and there's a whole group of guys, you know, Tracy Dixon was the closest to that group that I could get. Um, but there's a guy that down the street from our old shop, uh, Mueller, I'm trying to, to get a hold of him and, and some other guys that I just want to have conversations with, uh, 
you know, I'm trying to get a hold of Dean Kirsten, the editor for three, uh, VW Magazine, who did the very first three wheeler magazine story, you know, my dad's in the cover. So, yeah, there's so many things and so many people to reach out to. And, um, yes, Doug Gust and yes, Gary Denton and Corey Ellis and, and, uh, Jeremy Shell and uh, so many others, you, you know, uh, Joe Bird and I are playing phone tag and unfortunately his father's has, um, a surgery going on or we would have, I would have interviewed him a, a day or uh, yesterday. Um, but th- there's just so many, so many people like, I mean, I, Carol Brandt's episodes coming up. Um, Mike Penland, uh, GNCC guy, uh, you know, I had an amazing interview with him and, and uh, I'm bringing him back for a whole series because I don't think anybody knows anything about him. And you got to hear this guy, this guy's for, for a non-sport quad. He's a real deal, man. He's what he is, what you put into the passion and, and the love of the sport. And, uh, so that, that that was really exciting for me to learn from him. I knew of him and I had met him a few times, but getting to talk to him and, and was a, was a special treat for me. No, that's great. And I love, you know, the, the young lady that you did a couple of weeks ago, she had a great story. Um, so I, I, I love it all, but certainly the, the older writers, the writers that I remember as a kid are the ones I'm really looking forward to hearing from. Well, uh, you know, just a little teaser about, uh, about, uh, Joe bird. He raced for 33 years. Mm-hmm. He raced three wheelers and f- 250 R's and, you know, rolled all the way into, he won his premier championships in 2006 and 2007 riding Honda. Right. And he when in, in the little thing that we were talking about, he, and I didn't, I didn't, I haven't got this on tape yet. I told him to save it, but he raced back when the factories were all there. And you might want to say, you can't take anything away from Marty Hart. You can't take anything away from Sundahl or Mike Coe or Jimmy or Donnie Luce or any of those guys. Cause they were all stellar at their time. Oh, absolutely. But, but if you look at the modern day four stroke ATV national group, he raced against Hedrick. He raced against Weenan. He raced against Gust. He raced against Denton. He raced against Hit. You know, you go back and he's raced against all these legends. And wow. I think Joe and I are going to have a good conversation. Yeah, that sounds great. I'm looking forward to hearing that, that conversation. So, and I, I prefer to call him a conversation than, than an interview because um, I think one of the guys that's coming up, he'll come up in the mid-January, um, Dustin Nelson. He's a crossover. Um, that guy is super intelligent and his evaluations of the industry and motorcycles and ATVs, it, you know, it's going to shed some light on Gary Denton's success for a lot of people. and. Um, one of the guys that's coming up here real soon, uh, Travis Damon, he's a crossover on the West coast from, he races professional off-road for works on a motorcycle and professional ATV. Um, at the same time, uh, Bo Barron's a, a crossover guy as well. So, right. uh, you know, I've seen Mike Sloan ride a two wheeler pretty well too. He could have raced, um, probably should, but, uh, so, you know, Greg, uh, Greg Rose, uh, 
another guy that um, it, it, West Coast Baja guy, uh, his son Josh, phenomenal two wheeler guy. He hasn't won anything really on a two wheeler of note. But if you, in the last 10 years, if you wanted to win a Baja championship or you want to wear a best in the desert championship, that was the guy that was on your team. Right. So I know we're got off topic and off tangent, you know, getting into some other things, but that, that's where the conversations go. That's what it's all about. Yeah, no, that's this. And it's a great platform, you know, to be able to have these conversations and, and talk about things that, that bring the industry together. Cause I'm like you, I'm passionate about it. And I still love ATVs and I'm, I'm was you know, so excited when I found your podcast because just wasn't a lot out there other than Cody's and Cody serves a great purpose of covering the nationals and, and that, but you know, I know how much history you and, and your brother have clear back to the beginnings of team Honda. And, and that really interests me. Well, you know, if you think about it, if you really break down the the time frame in 1969, the first three wheeler came to the States. Okay. In 1969, I got my first ride on a three wheeler from my father in the front yard, a green big wheel 90. Wow. You know, and as I have some of the literature and some of the things I've said in past episodes, I was hooked right then. And, um, you go back in 1972, uh, you know, my dad's on the side building motors, you know, while working for Valley motorcycle sales. Um, he's also in the midst of doing the XR 75s and things like that for guys like Ricky Johnson. I was just going to ask you that I had heard a story that he built an XR for Rick Johnson. And I was going to ask you if that was true. Well, he built, uh, and he was building Ricky stuff, um, until he got into the bigger bike classes. And then when Ricky was riding for Yamaha, they were having a failure problem with one of their deals and they brought it to my dad and my dad solved the issue for him. Wow. And, um, uh, back when Ricky rode with Brock and, uh, you know, I'd love to reach out and get Ricky on the show. I just don't know how to get a hold of him anymore. Um, sure. So there's, there's so many history things that we can talk about just in our family. You know, I mean, I really enjoyed with Mike Coe because he, uh, he's been around for so long with some of the stuff and he got to tell me things that I didn't know uh, about some of the things that Sam had done, his brother. And unfortunately, right. he's, you know, not well right now, but uh, hopefully he'll pull through. Um, and be okay. So, you know, there, there, there's just, there's just so much history, you know, like when I was talking to Cody, Cody didn't have, Cody didn't have any knowledge or recollection of anything, you know, 90 ish back, maybe slightly into the eighties, but because he's so young, right. You know, he's 91. So he's, he's thinking 95, 96, 97 was it. No, bro, you got to go back to the seventies. <laughs> he's right. like, what? See, and I don't go back that far, but to me, the golden age was that, that 80, the, the early eighties through, you know, through the end of the, the three wheeler era in 86 were the times that were just, the industry was booming. And I mean, I looked at those guys like as if they were superstars and and they and they are and they were you, you know a lot of people don't realize that in in 2003 2004 works the world off road championship series we ran 
you know, 26 pros. So you're running two lines of pros on the gate and then a line of pro-ams that's one to two lines deep and you're dropping the green flag for, for the race. And the first line goes, you know, with the secondary line behind them because right. there wasn't enough gates and then, then they roll the pro-ams into the gate and, and drop it green flag for them. So you have, you know, 40 some quads on the course at one time and that's when it was big that's when it was huge right so i got to experience that with no factory there were no factories this was all industry-based industry carried right and uh i think the factories came back the last time and did more damage than they did than they helped you know because they drove the price of the they drove the price of the riders through the roof and then every guy wanted a million dollars to race. And you you know what, dude, we're an independent company. We're, we're not Honda. We're not Yamaha. We're not Suzuki. We pay you more to race than I make in a year. Sorry. Ain't going to happen. Sure. (laughs) Right. No. And I've heard your brother talk about that, that, that like Travis Bader years, you guys just, it just didn't make financial sense anymore. No, it's, it's, if you get a guy that loves it as much as you do and realizes that it's a business and that, you know, you're, I'm giving my knowledge and my time to him for a specific fee because that's getting him where he wants to be. That's okay. But I'm not, I did it for free for too many years and I'm not, I'm not going back. I know that sounds horrible, but I'm sorry. You know, I mean, I have elderly parents. I have grandkids. Uh, I have a wife and maybe I wouldn't have ex-wives if I would have uh, stayed home in, instead of went racing. But uh, sure. It, you know, it is what it is. You, you make decisions, you do the things you do. I wouldn't be where I am today if I didn't do those things. So, right. You know, we're way off track of, of ATV racing and, and, and everything. We got into some other stuff, which is always fun to do. Um, I think that if you look at another division of the industry that most people don't want to talk about, uh, the utility guys. Have you seen some of the utility quads and some of the things that they can do and some of the speeds that they can travel? You know, I haven't as much, but I, I do follow a little bit of the GNCC when you talked about like Mike Pentland and, and I know those guys are doing some incredible things. Could you imagine a thousand CC Polaris or Can-Am lowered with street tires with a four wheel drive unit on Pike's Peak? Wow. Yes, that would be amazing. And they're fuel injected. Right. So if your, if your individuals are says, you know, that's a great power plant right there. Uh, you'd have to lighten it up and, and get some aerodynamics on the fenders. Uh, right. But you know, you, you have, um, I think I just wrote a Polaris, uh, I don't even know what size it was. I think the thing's 1100 pounds. Wow. A quad. Wow. But it, it's incredible horsepower road so smooth um i'd like to get a real weight on it but um they had it out at a photo shoot we did here recently and they let us ride it and sure like driving a it's it's like riding a car wow 
Yeah. Unbelievable. And I didn't even, I didn't even hit the performance button. I just wrote it in the normal mode. Right. (laughs) So. Well, it's amazing where technology, when you look at, you know, those first nineties and one tens and that to where we are now, it's just, but the funny thing is Honda still uses that base motor. I think kind of in like some of their, their off-road dirt bikes and stuff. Now they went to fuel injection, but I think that that same motor, they still same general motor. They still use. Well, the, the old school technology that you're talking about, the, the seventies and the nineties and, and, and the one tens, yes, they still make the children the, the kids bikes. Um, they still make that. That's the base motor plant for it. And you've seen the Chinese guys have knocked it off. Right. Um, Kawasaki has a version of similar uh, motor. That's, that's like that. Um, I believe Suzuki may as well. Um, and Yamaha has some similar design stuff. Um, but that is, you're talking about a core motor that the, the technology or the basis on it goes back 60 years. Right. You know? So, so you're, you're not really changing the technology. None of them, none of them have went fuel injected. They're all carbureted. So, right. and, and they've keep the basic same intakes, basic same exhaust, you know, they change the plastics, the gas tanks and the frames and a little bit of the suspension to make them cool. Right. But they're, it's, they're not changing their production cost that much on an engine because their electronics are similar. Right. You know, where, where you get your big changes are is you look at your CRF two fifties and your CRF four fifties, right. You know, your YZF, you know, YZ four fifty Fs. I mean, the technology and the motor design there, when that 99 uh, Yamaha 400 came out, it, it rocked the, the industry with right. an engine design that I don't think the consumer base is still, I still don't think they understand what they have and what it is because it is not a recreational motor. No. Full blown single cylinder indie car you know, change the oil, run good gas, change the air filter, uh, check the valves, do things that you're not used to doing uh, because it's so high tech. They, they're, they're great. They're reliable and people run them into the ground, but then they get the bill to fix them and they're just like, what? Right. <laughs> I could buy a new quad. Well, Hey, you rode this one for 12 years and didn't do any maintenance. Well, I changed right. the oil here. <laughs> okay. That's no maintenance. <laughs> This is an IndyCar motor, dude. Would you drive right. your car on old oil? Would you put pump gas in your IndyCar? Okay, you just right. answered your questions. Right. <laughs> so those are things that I face, you know, because gas deterioration is, is uh, a big issue and, and nobody ever wants to talk about it. You know, nobody ever wants to, you know, the gas companies will lie to your face and tell you, right. oh, well, it does this and it does that. Well, no, it doesn't. They work no. on the carbureted stuff all the time. Yeah. So no, you can't leave gas in a carburetor for five minutes and it, it now and it gums it up and it, it's well, just horrible. You have a chemical reaction between the fuel and the brass and the water in the, in the chemicals that they're using. And you know, I'm not a chemist, so I'm probably misstating something. Um, but it also reacts against the aluminum and, and then the brass. So the reaction between the aluminum and the, and the chemicals in the water and the chemicals in the water and the brass. And then there's a reaction to the reactions together and, and it gets, some of it gets hard and doesn't come out. 
Right. So it's extra time learning how to do those things. Um, you know, Lauren's kind of turned most of that over to me and, and, and I spend an astronomical amount of time cleaning carburetors, um, and, and making them, trying to make them function and new again. Uh, I've ran into a few that I had to throw away because they just, they, you couldn't fix them. Sure. Um, but for the most part, we're, we've got, we're getting it down to where we can bring them back to life and, and fix them. But if you put pump gas in it, the second time it's not coming back. Right. So, but uh, I think that there's positive portions of the off-road industry. Do I think that in the next vision of time, will we see numbers like you'd like to see? No, I don't think so. I don't think it's going to, I don't think I, I, I see the pro class and the works growing. I see the pro, pro, pro class in the, in the motocross nationals stabilizing to where you're not down on numbers. Um, and you see the GNCC guys because I think there's more value for your dollar in racing uh, because it's a longer race. Um, it's more compact. Um, you're, you're getting a higher volume of um, people that are able to do it in, in one shot. And they just they just love it because you're not having to jump a huge tabletop and a and a big gap, um, or you're not going across the the edges at seventy miles an hour. Um, the speeds are a little lower. the The technique is way high because you have right. to, be able to navigate the trees. So my hats off to the GNCC guys. You know, I I can't ride like they can. I mean, I can't. Go no, 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 those guys are amazing. At the speeds they travel, I mean, no, they're not hitting an edge at 70 miles an hour, 80 miles an hour, like the desert guys, but they're weaving through the trees at, at 40 to, you know, to 50 miles an hour that, yeah, I'm freaking, I'm carting that thing out on a trailer because right. I run end off of it, you know? So you have aspects of the industry that um, are still good and still strong. And, um, uh, you know, I, I think we're all going to survive and restorations are a huge thing, huge thing for a lot of companies. We're doing a ton of it. And, uh, right. um, you know, as long as we can get parts, we're going to keep doing it. Yeah. I wish I had a few things to restore. I wish I still wish I had my 250R. That's for sure. Hey, dude, I can set you up. <laughs> you know, we, we, we know people and I know people yeah. that are selling them all the time. So if you're ever really into interested, just, Give a shout okay. out. Absolutely. That and I always wanted an 86 Kawasaki. I thought those look just look super cool. I don't know that they were that great of, if they were that great of a bike or not, but they were fast. Yeah. They were fast. I, I don't know if they were I I've never seen it. No offense to the Kawasaki lovers. I've never seen a Kawasaki that was better quality than a Honda. No, so, no, I agree. <laughs> so um, but they've always made some really good machines, you know, I mean, every once in a while they hit the nail on the head and, and it's an awesome machine. So, um, that, that was a fast machine and, and it was a formidable competitor. And until the three wheelers went away, they, they, right. they missed the boat on their Ducati four. They missed their boat on their, on their Kawasaki 450 that they made for a while. Right. The 700, uh, the V force. That was a cool bike. I got to race that right. for Kawasaki for a season. Um, it had some quirky quirkiness in the rear, rear suspension and how it worked. Um, 
but it was a, it was a pretty cool bike, you know, I mean, it was powerful and, and, and actually fun to ride handled pretty well for the general consumer base. Um, you could turn a, a beginner level rider out in the sand dunes on that machine and they'd have a ball, you know, or right. the trails because you didn't have to shift. All you did do is turn the throttle and you yep. hit the brake, turn the throttle and, and, and it did everything you wanted to do and it had a reverse. Right. And, you know, fun stuff. So, you know, the, 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 I don't know where it's all going to go. Uh, I know that I'm going to be here till the end of, of my time in the industry. And, and, and I hope that's not soon. I hope that's years and years down the road. So we'll, we'll see where it all goes. And hopefully this coronavirus will go away so that we all can go back racing. Right. Exactly. So I agree. Well, Jim, we've, we've spent a lot of time here today and I really appreciate you uh, giving ATV talk all this time. Oh, I appreciate you having me on. I, I mean, I feel honored to be, you know, in with some of the guests you've had. So that's, that's great. And um, I look forward to all of the upcoming episodes for sure. Well, you know, uh, I may cut this part out, but yeah, we're, uh, just this last little portion, we are taped into April of 2021. Oh, great. And that's not counting the special episodes that I'm going to have. Right. So. Well, then I better get busy and go back and catch up with the ones I have to listen to. Well, every Tuesday we drop a new episode. Yeah. Um, and there might be a little disruption uh, Thanksgiving week and there might be a little disruption Christmas and new year's uh, sure. with, with when they come out on Apple, but on right. Spotify and all the others, they'll come out and there won't be any disruption whatsoever. Okay. Um, well, I'm looking forward to it. it. When people are listening to your episode, you're going to come out next year. So right. okay. uh, in the, in the 2021, even though we're, we're talking about events in, in, uh, you know, November of 20, people are going right. to scratch their head and go, what? <laughs> <laughs> no, well, it's great. I, I, you know, I love this bench racing and I, you know, just talking about the, the industry and everything like that. I think that, that, uh, people with your knowledge, you know, eventually that that's going to go away unless it's shared. And so that's, I think it's cool that we're all able to share this and hear the stories and, um, I'm sure there's, there's some that we can't tell, but not many, you know, and on my side of it, there's not many that I wouldn't tell, um, you know, but, but there, I've heard know. some stories about team Honda back in the, the, the early eighties, but well, Mike brought up some of it. Yeah. And, and, and I, I don't know, I, I would never want to say that. I don't know. I wasn't there yeah. and right. I feel bad for, I feel bad for the fact that he feels so jaded by Honda. Yeah. Um, I mean, I do remember watching Marty on the four wheeler at Boyd and they had some Oates tires that were looked like the Hoosiers. And this was before the dirt track. This was when Hoosier had, you know, just the tri tracks. And I remember standing by his pit. They took those Oates tires off threw Hoosiers on. He went out and raced, came back, they pulled them off immediately and put the oats back on. So you could, so it looked like he ran those tires when in fact he raced on Hoosiers. Right. But I happened to be just standing by his pit when they did that, when he went to the line. Um, 
you know, obviously that was back when Honda was very, like Mike talked about, very exclusive on what pro, what stuff you used and things like that. I think that some of the factories still are, but technology okay. in tires and technology in, in uh, componentry that you use now and the ability to make parts faster. Um, you know, some of those tire guys can knock off a tire. Uh, like in the, the Oats tire deal, Marty was telling us that when they would do a tire test, they had guys there that would groove the tire to, and they had specific compounds so that wow. they were, they were developing the tire right there. Wow. Uh, and that's incredible. Yeah. And then they would take those tires back and analyze them and then make some of the tires because you, you think of the, the 88, 89, 250R tire. That's the best mm-hmm. sand tire they're ever made. Oh, absolutely. You know, and and it was developed from the racing and all the work that they did. Right. Uh, you know, you raced, everybody wanted the O2 front tires that mm-hmm. Marty raced with that were smaller. You know, they weren't the 21s that you would get on the bike. They were 20s. I think they were 20s, you know, and everybody wanted a pair of those because whether you race TT or motocross or whatever it is, that tire was the best front tire. Right, right. You know, I I think we sold the set um, in the 2000s. I I think Lauren gave them away for pennies on the dollar just because, you know, we'd had them so long and this this person was going to use them. You know, right. I remember he had some cool stuff stacked, you know, like up in the rafters and stuff. He had some of those trick. I can't remember if they were oats or the Hoosier knobbies that I think they were those. They kind of look like the stock tires that came on the 86 250Rs, but they were the race version. We had some grooves. Roots. Otsu rears. Yeah. Grooved ones. Um, I don't know what happened to those. I remember he showed me those when I was at your shop. Yep. We, we, we had some of those. Um, we had some other stuff that um, I don't, I don't even know what happened to some of it. Uh, Lauren might've hid it, hidden it away, um, right. but there were parts that, that were given to us uh, when Lauren was Honda's mechanic, Marty's mechanic with Honda. And there were some billet steel pieces that were made and uh, other things that nobody's going to make. Right. They make them now in aluminum uh, and it's mass produced because the, the technology in CNC machines and the clutching technology and some of the building technology changed. But back then, no, nobody made stuff like that. Right. Yeah. And, and some of it got lost or some of it got misplaced. Uh, I mean, you get so busy in your life and so busy, busy trying to make, make a living that, you know, keepsakes don't become keepsakes when you're trying to pay the bills. Right. Right. No, absolutely. So I've got to see some pretty cool stuff. I bet. But I really appreciate you for your time. Um, and I know that you're a busy guy. Uh, keep the door open. Uh, maybe we'll, we'll re- retouch these conversations again uh, in the okay. future. And uh, don't, don't, don't forget that photo of that uh, Takati. I will find one and I will sh- I'll send you one. Yeah, because I'm, I'm not a Takati fan technically, but I'm, I'm a fan of trick motorcycles and ATVs. I definitely find a photo of, of that bike for you. All right. I appreciate that. And you okay. stay safe and uh, 
you know, keep the thin blue line uh, moving forward for us. I appreciate it, Lenny. Thank you. All right, brother. You have a great All night. Right. And, you and too. Gift in soon. Thanks. All right, buddy. Have a great one. You too. Bye-bye. The team here at ATV Talk would love your feedback. Please email us at hello at ATVTalkPodcast.com. Brought to you by Take-Two Custom Tees. Screen printing experience that is dedicated to quality and customer service every time. San Diego's Body Evolution Wellness Center. With over 17 years experience, Dr. Heidi looking after all your chiropractic needs and Coach PJ looking after your fitness needs. Visit our website, www.bodyevolutions.org or call for an appointment, 858-571-0160. Duncan Technologies International. More than 33 years in the industries building racing programs and ATVs around the world. We build winners. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the episode. If you did, don't forget to rate us on all the available platforms and share us with your loved ones. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook for more ATV Talk News. See you next time.